Good morning. Our next case is State versus Tucker, and we will hear from the appellant. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, good morning. I'm Elizabeth Hamburger. I represent Russell Tucker with Mr. Maher here, who's beside me. Um, Russell Tucker's Batson claim is unusual and it is unique. This is the only active case that I'm aware of in which the Batson justification CLE handout was used as a cheat sheet at the trial. This is direct, telltale evidence of pretext. But the claim has never been heard on the merits because the MAR court found it to be procedurally barred, contrary to the precedent of this court. So we are seeking a remand for merits review under this court's unanimous 2018 opinion in State versus Hyman. When asked to give his true subjective explanations for removing black jurors, the prosecutor read his answers off of a training document. In other words, rather than giving his honest subjective reasons, he used a handout as a cheat sheet. Counsel, I'm, I'm sorry, what evidence is in the record that he actually read uh, from, well, from this uh, CLE handout? Uh, yes, Your Honor. So um, if, if you look at our, uh, I think the best example, there's several examples, um, but I think the best one is our brief at the top of page three. Those are also uh, pages 10 and pages 304 of the appendix. You can see a comparison. Um, the, actually, this, you know, the, the top of um, the, 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 the excerpt there at the top of our uh, page three of our brief are actually the first words out of the prosecutor's mouth the first time there was a Batson objection in this trial. Uh, his very first words were, we felt we had appropriate justification. Obviously, justification is the title of the handout. He said then next, one, his body language, two, his answers which we felt were inappropriate. I think answers which were inappropriate is the most clear verbatim quote from the handout if you look at, uh, at the matching part of the handout regarding um, uh, juror answers. It says answers which are inappropriate. But there, there's nothing in the record where the prosecutor stated, I read directly from this handout. That's true, Your Honor, and that's exactly the reason why this claim was not available earlier, because it was only available once you have the prosecutor's file and you can see that document in the file, then counsel is able to compare it to the transcript and what was being stated on the record, and then you can see that the handout was being used. How, how does the fact that the trial court found there was no prima facie uh, case made by the, or showing made by the defendant, uh, factor into the, the use uh, purported use of this CLE handout? Uh, well, Your Honor, the, um, I believe you're referring to the question of mootness of this first step, which has, did come up in the briefing. Um, the state has actually conceded already in their brief that the that this, that first step is moot, and therefore the court can move on to the third step. Well, did, did the trial court find that? The trial court both made rulings at both step one and step three. Well, but the trial court found that no prima facie um, showing had been made. That's correct, yes. And, and uh, the MAR court uh, agreed with that determination. That's correct. Thank you. Uh, but but uh, this court's precedent, recent precedent in State versus Hobbs says that, and which is very consistent with U.S. Supreme Court precedent, Hernandez versus New York, says that when a, when a trial court makes a finding of no prima facie case, if the state then gives its reasons, and if the trial court then 
considers those reasons and rules on the question of purposeful discrimination, the ultimate question at step three, then the, the step one question becomes moot. But, well, but I also- Doesn't uh, Hoffman and Locklear uh, say the opposite? Um, I don't know that they present exactly the facts. I, I, certainly, I would not say that the court's precedent in Hobbs is incorrect. It, all of these, there are lots of cases about mootness, and they all present slightly different factual scenarios. Well, um, you, you would agree that Hoffman and Locklear indicate that if the trial court makes finding that no prima facie case has been shown uh, by the defendant, that that ends the inquiry. And that even if uh, the trial court requests and subsequent uh, explanations are offered, uh, those explanations are not uh, relevant to the step one determination that the court has already made. Well, that's a question for an appellate court. So th- I mean, this is not an appeal, I but, think, and, very significantly. And, and so you mentioned Hernandez. Isn't um, the, the reference to um, uh, proceeding beyond step one in Hernandez, uh, one, dicta, and two, perhaps a plurality opinion? Uh, perhaps, Your Honor, again, I would turn your attention to the precedent of this court, which is State versus Hobbs, uh, which says that when, and, which, and, and I would also say that that makes perfect sense, Your Honor, because when a, when a, when a first of all, again, this is not an appeal. And so uh, the question of, of mootness is really simply a question of can an appellate court, when considering a trial record, can that court, uh, does that court need to fun- consider only step one and perhaps remand for more consideration in the trial court, or can it make a determination at step three? That's the only question of mootness. Mootness does not, uh, it, it is not a, a mechanism for making evidence of discrimination evaporate or disappear. And, and so I, I think one thing I want to say about this is that I don't think it, that this case turns on whether or not the first step is moot. The state has conceded that the first step is moot. So I, I think we can move on because of that. But also, it, the question, as, as we were just talking about in the Richardson case, um, the question at the first step is the totality of the circumstances. Uh, all of the evidence, including the prosecutor's answers, are, rel- are part of the totality of the circumstances and are relevant at step one once they've been stated in open court. So the, and in addition, in this case, the fact that the cheat sheet exists in the prosecutor's file and matches the words of the prosecutor in the transcript is also part of step one. So if you want to consider whether all of that raises an inference of discrimination, that's fine. Then move on to whether it shows purposeful discrimination. They're really the same question. Step one versus step three is more of a a way to direct trial courts in how to go about the Batson process, it's certainly not a way to say that certain that evidence of discrimination somehow disappears because the trial court didn't find the first step. Well, let, let me ask you about uh, this first step determination, uh, specifically with regard to juror Ma- Banner. Mm-hmm. Um, the the very as as I've looked at the transcript, the very first words out of the prosecutor's mouth with regard to uh, Ms. Banner is, wake up. Mm-hmm. Is that your reading of the transcript? It is. And, and at that point, uh, the prosecutor, for whatever reason, uh, if, if it could or couldn't have, decided not to strike uh, Ms. Banner for cause. Uh, there's no motion for cause in the record. Right, and, and proceeded to, to ask additional questions. She, Ms. Banner says, I told you I didn't do well early, mm-hmm. right? And that's because of her, her um, job requirements. That, that is in the transcript, yes. 
Okay. So, so is the fact that a juror was sleeping a relevant uh, determination uh, at step one, um, in your opinion? Well, um, um, this we just talked about the, or you just spoke about with this about with well, about I, this with prior counsel, but I didn't, but I I didn't I do, want to tie you to someone else's answer. Yeah, no, I and, and I actually not sure I would have answered the same way. Um, the prima facie case is about the totality of the circumstances, certainly. The law is also very clear, and for very good reason, that the uh, court cannot insert its own potential reasons for the, the reasons of the prosecutor. The question of Batson at step one and at step three is the prosecutor's intent. Um, for the court to uh, determine, to assume that a juror was struck for a certain reason, that the court observes is it doesn't give any information as to what the prosecutor's intent is. And one reason for that is because it would make Batson function, functionally inoperative to, to do that. There are, having sat through and conducted jury selection myself, I think we can all, we all know that there could be a reason to strike any juror. And there's a number of white jurors in this, uh, we've listed many, many of them in the brief, where they were passed, and yet it would be easy to come up with a reason why they could have been struck. Many of them said, for instance, that they didn't want to serve on the jury. There's a number of jurors who said that. Many of them expressed hesitation or reservations about the death penalty. So there, anyone, if, if anyone's wondering why they were struck or not struck, there's something there for anybody, right? It's a buffet because jurors are individual people. People have you know, their idiosyncrasies. Jury selection is never going to be about picking the 12 perfect people in the pool. It's going to be about selecting people who have a variety of characteristics. And you're going to be able to, a judge wondering why someone was struck is going to be able to say that any juror, that there's a good reason for striking them. That's the reason they have to go to step two and ask for the prosecutor's true subjective reasons for the strike. That's the only way to determine the prosecutor's intent. So, so you're arguing that the answers a juror provides is not considered under the totality of the circumstances at step, step one? I don't see how, Your Honor, how that can be done without violating the Supreme Court law that says that a court cannot insert or make up its own reasons. Millerell is very clear. It says the question is what the prosecutor's reasons are. The prosecutor must stand and fall on the plausibility of the reasons he gives. Batson is not an exercise in coming up with any rational reason for the strike. I, I can't square that statement which underpins Batson that the prosecutor's intent is, is the defining question. I can't square that with the ability of the court to be able to consider its own reasons without having heard from the prosecutor. But you would agree that a juror sleeping would be a valid reason for use of either a strike for cause or a peremptory strike? Well, possibly. I mean, valid. I mean, the, peremp I mean, the law on peremptory strikes is that you can strike for any reason that isn't race or gender. Um, so, so, yeah, any reason is valid, and I can imagine that. But, but one thing about, you know, talking about Ms. Banner is that this record doesn't tell us how many white jurors may have been dozing. I mean, jury selection is very boring. Well, but the, the cold record clearly indicates that she had to be awakened by the prosecutor. Yes. And, and Ms. Banner goes on to say she used all, all her paid leave, and uh, the prosecutor asked, is that going to affect your ability to sit here and hear this evidence and apply it to the law as the judge gives you? And she says, I guess it would. I don't know. I'll have to check with personnel on it. 
She said, and again, Your Honor, no, no juror is quote-unquote perfect, and this, proce- this team of prosecutors passed, accepted for jury service, numerous white jurors who said they did not want to serve on this jury, who so, said it would be a hardship, who were obviously trying hard to get out of jury service. So, so if, if we're going to do that comparative analysis, how many of those white jurors had also fallen asleep? We, you know, we don't know, Your Honor. I mean, one, from the record. One problem from the cold record is you don't know the answer to that. Okay, but, but from the record, we know that Ms. Banner definitely had both of those uh, against her. Well, that's true, but, but the trial court, and, and, and that's true, but, but one, the Supreme Court has been clear that make, and this court has been clear in State versus Clegg, that that, look, that, that, that can be misleading to, um, to consider things like demeanor and body language when the record does not reflect what the demeanor and body language was of white jurors, and also, as this court has said it recently in Clegg, because reasons like body language and demeanor are on the cheat sheet. But this isn't uh, body language and demeanor. These are different categories here that we've just discussed, right? That's true. Now, uh, the prosecutor in uh, discussing Ms. Ms. Banner also indicates that uh, there's at least a practice of not uh, taking nurses um, is, is that a valid reason as well? Not in this case, Your Honor, and I think, again, any reason is valid. Any, any, I, I can strike a juror because they have brown hair. Any reason is valid. Th- that's not the question. The question is whether or not the prosecutor, when the prosecutor said that, that was his true reason. In this case, it, it's quite clear that it was not. Uh, he passed a white juror who was a health care worker who actually expressed concern about how his uh, work as a healthcare worker working with terminally ill patients versus Ms. Banner, who was a nursing assistant, that where he passed, the prosecutors passed a white juror who specifically said he wasn't sure how his work as a healthcare worker would, uh, would impair his ability to consider the death penalty. And if you look at other cases, the prosecutors used, I mean, that, the language that the prosecutor here used regarding nurses not being willing to take life, those who, those who want to save lives we found do not want to take lives, they use that exact language in other cases to strike black jurors but not white jurors. Uh, I mean, Banner, black nurses but not white nurses. Ms. Banner was also not registered to vote. As were many white jurors also not registered to okay, vote. But again, comparatively, did those other jurors that you've just discussed fall asleep? Well, is, is there evidence no, in the record Honor. that they fell asleep? Is there evidence in the record that those individuals that you were specifically talking about uh, couldn't concentrate or give their full attention to the trial? To be honest, Your Honor, I'm not sure. I'm not going to say no to that. And isn't that the problem with grouping uh, everyone as uh, white jurors or black jurors is that we're not dealing with the specifics. You're talking in generalities about everyone. Well, um, no, Your Honor. And and for that, I turn to, again, to the United States Supreme Court, which has clearly said we cannot treat jurors as cookie cutters. We cannot uh, say that in order to conduct comparative juror analysis, these jurors need to be identical. That is that that would make, as the Supreme Court has said, that's an inoperative. Counsel, I wanted to take one step back just to make sure I understood your argument. So, suppose that in a case, um, the defense counsel made the showing either that we heard in the previous argument in Richardson or that that occurred in this case, 
What evidence in the totality of the circumstances, in your view, could lead a trial court to say you haven't made the prima facie case then, if you think the sorts of evidence that we've been discussing really shouldn't be considered? What, what is getting considered there could lead you in a case like that to say we're not going past this first stage? Uh, well, if the, if the, the, the pattern, if the, def, if the defense is unable to establish that there has been a pattern of, uh, of strikes. Right, but if, suppose they did. Mm-hmm. What, what evidence, that's what I'm trying to figure out. Like, why do we, why is the, the Supreme Court of the United States treating it like this totality of the circumstances if, because uh, I'm having trouble thinking of what, once you've made a showing like that, is going to move you back in the other direction if we can't consider the kinds of evidence that we've discussed here. So you're, you're asking what, once you've, once you, just want to make sure I understand. So once you have shown some statistical pattern. Correct. Um, is there anything that would not meet a prima facie case? Right. Is there anything that would, that would also be considered as part of the totality of circumstances that would lead the court to say, I'm stopping here at sure. step one? I, I mean, I think uh, what the law says, and, and the, this question from Justice Berger earlier about what prosecutors say, uh, the question, it, it's differential questioning would, would be something that would be considered at step one. Um, I think also um, other things that the prosecutor has said. Um, in this case, for instance, you know, where before Voidir even started, the prosecutor said that they wanted to destroy their jury selection questionnaires. Um, that's something. And also, the other, the other thing that's relevant at step one is, is if as happened in this court, in this case, for instance, if the prosecutor says, or if the court says, I don't find a prima facie case, please put your re- answers on the record. Whatever the prosecutor says at that point is also relevant to prima facie case and can, and, you know, mean that the court needs to reopen the prima facie case. If if the prosecutor says, uh, if if the court finds no prima facie case, the prosecutor then is asked to give reasons, quote unquote, for the record, and the prosecutor says. I don't like black people, uh, then, then that's part of the totality of the circumstances that should be considered again at the prima I'm facie I'm struggling case. to figure out which of those answers that you gave me would lead the court to say, okay, we can end here at step one. Are you asking me whether I think that the prima facie case is always met when you have a pattern? Well, I'm leading you to that because I'm, hope- and I'm hoping you can show me why that's not the case. Well, I, I, I think it depends on the pattern. Uh, I, I mean, the, the, this court and and um, Hoffman, uh, this court and certainly the U.S. Supreme Court have said that the question, the prima facie question, is a very low bar. Um, if there but is, my a, point is, but there is a bar, mm-hmm. and there's this idea that you look at the totality of the circumstances. I'm trying to figure out why, why say all that if, effectively, if the reality is because of what can't be considered, that as soon as you have that evidence, you're going to step. Step two, I'm just trying to understand that. Well, as I said, the, the questions that the prosecutor asks, um, other statements of the prosecutor, whether or not this is a case with a black defendant and a white victim, whether or not it's a hate crime, all of those, all of those things, the history, the judge's history with this prosecutor, and also uh, any history evidence that the defense attorneys bring up um, as showing prior, you know, uh, disparities in prior cases, so, uh, whether or not so the, they're aware that, of I understand. So you're saying, for example, that perhaps a, the court could say, okay, you've made that, the numerical showing, but this prosecutor, as far as I'm aware, has no history of ever, uh, you know, be, being challenged from, in bats and grounds, so I'm going to say we're done at step one here. 
to, it sounds, I, I think Your Honor and I may have a difference of opinion about the harm of going to step two unnecessarily. I, when I, I hear I'm the, not suggesting there's any harm. I just want to understand, uh, in terms doctrinally, mm-hmm. why have a step one? And that, that's what I want to make sure I understand. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, there could be, there certainly could be cases where there is no pattern, um, where, where the, the prosecution has passed five black jurors and then you object to the first black juror, you know, struck. Maybe the pattern hasn't been established at that point. Well, isn't the point of requiring a prima facie case in this context at least in part a, a, a sense of respect for the process of being able to use peremptory challenges? And that by revealing a reason for why a, a counsel uh, for either side decided to strike a juror, you're, you can gain insight into the trial strategy. And, and there's been a concept that peremptory strikes are, are, as you say, our prerogative. We can strike for any reason we want to, mm-hmm. uh, but not um, because the person belongs to a protected category. Mm-hmm. So, so doesn't it make sense to say that at the first stage, we have to see whether there's anything here? before we require the prosecutor to divulge or the whoever's being challenged the counsel to divulge why they used a peremptory challenge yes and and the threshold is low i i, I mean the the value of peremptory strikes there's a value in peremptory strikes i've certainly exercised them myself but it's it's it pales in comparison to the need for the system to police discrimination and and prevent discrimination so uh, that, when you, that makes sense to me but so in the context when the evidence to, that to begin that process is uh, saying, you know, I'm not just fishing here because I'd like to get into the mind of a prosecutor about strategy for peremptories, I, but it, you present the numerical data. What evidence in the totality of the circumstances there is going to lead the court to say, no, this is the sort of case where we're not getting into the minds of prosecutors. We're done here at step one. It, can you think of anything that would meet that criteria? Uh, I, I'm not sure, Your Honor. It may, again, it depends on the totality of the circumstances and what, what's going on in that trial. I would say that if a pattern has been established anywhere like the pattern that's in this case, where the prosecutor is removing 100% of the black jurors, that should be a prima facie case, especially given the history of discrimination in this country, in this state, in Forsyth County. Um, all of that should should be taken into account and lead the judge to err on the side of finding a prima facie case. Uh, and all that means is simply the prosecutor needs to give their reason. And I appreciate Justice Earl's comment about the, the, the potential that that might reveal strategy, although I would say, um, having conducted jury selection myself, I think the strategies are rarely hidden or, or uh, there's, there's hardly ever a question about uh, we're not guessing who the other side wants to keep and who they don't. Counsel, I want to make sure this court is not neglectful of the opening statement that you made that this was an unusual Batson claim in light of the existence of the Batson Justifications Guide. How would you have this court to look at that guide in terms of what you uh, say uh, is a, a clear demonstration that race was used in terms of what is in the record as to what was stated by the prosecutor in terms of the words that were used in using these peremptory challenges at issue. Yeah, thank you, Your Honor. Uh, the, um, the, 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 the Top Gun handout, the Batson Justifications handout, is the crux of this claim. Um, none of the rest of it can be understood without that. Uh, this, the law is very clear. Again, we're talking about Hernandez versus New York. Um, that 
the, the decisive question in a Batson uh, determination is whether or not counsel's reason should be believed. It is the honesty, it is the truthfulness of the prosecutor that is at issue in determining his or her intent. Um, and so when a, if, if a prosecutor is asked to give reasons, those should be very easy to give. Those should be at the very top of their head. It should be exactly what they've just been thinking about when they made this strike decision. They should not need to read those reasons off of a piece of paper that was prepared by someone else, presumably, presumably months or years prior to this trial. If you have a true reason, you don't need to read it off of a piece of paper. At the very least, the fact that the prosecutor read answers off a piece of paper raises a very substantial question about whether he was using those reasons, as a, whether those reasons were a pretext for race discrimination. And at the very least, that entitles us to an evidentiary hearing on the question of how the document was used at trial. Well, in light of what you responded uh, to the question of Justice Berger that there's nothing in the record that shows specifically that the prosecution used uh, the guidebook or uh, this, this resource. Uh, why should this court pay any attention then to the Batson Justifications Guide other than what you've said about matching up the words? Is that sufficiently persuasive? Uh, it's also in the file, Your Honor. And in addition, there's lots of other evidence of discrimination in this case. Uh, there are other notes, importantly, in the prosecutor's file, which I would say are even more explicitly uh, race-based. Uh, if you see on page four of, uh, of the appendix, there's a handwritten note by the prosecutor that says, no New York people rap music. I think a reference to rap music, particularly in the mid-1990s, is an explicit reference to race. And saying no rap music suggests they were looking to strike black jurors. There's also, as I mentioned, the fact that the prosecutors stated on the record that they were deliberately destroying the juror questionnaires so that, the so that no one, Mr. Tucker would never see the contents of their notes. I'll note that in Foster versus Chapman, of course, notes, uh, and the prosecutor specifically said what we will be doing on these questionnaires is circling or highlighting things that are important to us. It's exactly what happened in Foster versus Chapman, where race was being noted in the notes. We, don't, we will never know if the prosecutors were doing that in this case because they intentionally destroyed the, well, the questionnaires so we can't see them. Counselor, you said deliberately destroyed and intentionally destroyed. Was the um, uh, removal of the notes from the file um, done pursuant to a court order? Yes. Now, uh, turning uh, back to the uh, CLE handout, uh, the trial court uh, for the MAR went through um, so, some of the items on the handout, knowledge of the case, belief that criminal justice operates unfairly before facts presented, inappropriate dress, and, and went through a number of these uh, and, and it had next to each of those indications or each of those headings um, case law. Have you reviewed uh, the, the cases that were cited by the trial court judge or the MAR court? Yes, Your Honor. And, and did, did the trial court, MAR court, accurately um, state the law with regard to each of those headings? More or less. Okay. And the trial court goes on to make, um, well, it's more or less, which ones did he not uh, correctly state? Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. I can't, I can't give a more specific answer on that. But... Uh, yes, generally. Counsel, you did not reserve time for rebuttal. I did not, you want to Your reserve Honor, the rest? But I, but I would like some. That's I'm great. noticing it's ticking down. Is That's that all right, Your Honor? Yes. Thank you. We'll hear from the appellee. 
May it please the court, my name is Danielle Elder and I along with Jonathan Babb are here from the Department of Justice. We represent the state in this action. Uh, the defendant was tried capitally for the first degree murder of 23-year-old Maurice Travone Williams, who was a security guard at Kmart his first day on the job. Uh, the defendant also shot and barely missed assistant loss prevention manager William Mackey as the two men confronted him about the theft of merchandise at the store. The defendant uh, shot at Mr. Williams, killing him as Mr. Williams was running away. The defendant then fled through the parking lot and encountered two police officers who had been in a marked patrol vehicle in the parking lot, and as they drove towards him, he opened fire on the marked patrol vehicle, shooting and wounding uh, one of the two, shot both uh, officers, wounded one of them. Later, the defendant admitted to the shooting and said he only stopped shooting when he ran out of bullets. The trial court below uh, heard three Batson challenges and in the course of those Batson challenges determined that this case was not particularly sub subject to racial animus considering um, and noted the uh, race of the various um, witnesses and victim in this case. The defendant has had many opportunities over the various years to reassert his unsuccessful Batson challenges. Beginning uh, with a direct appeal before this court, he failed to do so. He then had multiple opportunities in a motion for appropriate relief. Several rounds of that, he failed to do any sort of motion based upon uh, any of the Batson challenges that were raised before trial. The question that is squarely before this court is whether or not the post-conviction statutes afford him the opportunity to do so now, or is he precluded from doing so under procedural bar? The defendant alleges that the procedural bar in this case is predicated upon this court's holding in State versus Burke. In Burke, you will recall that this court vacated the Superior Court's denial of his Racial Justice Act, which was raised pursuant to 15A-2010, finding that the application of the 2013 repeal of that statute violated the ex post, facto's law, ex post facto laws, as you had done in State versus Ramsour. This court also went on to find error in the Superior Court's denial of the alleged Batson violations which he had raised along with his RJA motion in a motion called an amended RJA motion which the state articulated and argued only raised Batson challenges and was only predicated upon the relief that Batson would offer which was a new trial rather than the provisions of the RJA which would, the remedy of which would have been the imposition of a life sentence. This court determined in Burke uh, in a one-sentence statement that the alleged procedural bars are negated by the language of the RJA. In particular, this court was referring to 15A 2012B of the Racial Justice Act, which says, notwithstanding any other provision of time limitation contained in Article 89, Chapter 15A of the general statutes, a defendant may seek, and this is the key part, relief from the defendant's death sentence upon the ground that racial considerations played a significant part of the decision to seek or impose a death sentence by filing a motion for appropriate relief. The fact that this statute 
is embedded in the Racial Justice Act, uh, the state continues to contend means that procedural bar has been eliminated for any racial justice claims, but has not extended uh, to the context of a non-RJA claim. If the legislature intended for the elimination of racial discrimination claims in the traditional non-RJA context, it could have done so by amending 15A, 1419, which it has not done. Are you saying that the Burke case then is inapplicable to this case? I am, Your Honor. And is it based upon the fact that uh, the Racial Justice Act claim you find that existed in Burke differentiates it from the present case? I am, Your Honor. Uh, in this case, the defendant raised both a motion for appropriate relief and an amendment to his RJA motion in one document. The lower court here on, in its order on page four and five made clear that it was only ruling on the Batson motion for appropriate relief and was not ruling on the RJA motion. The defense has contended that that is similarly situated with Burke's case. Nonetheless, uh, our argument is that the lower court has made clear um, and defined that Burke did not apply because he was only ruling on the Batson motion. And is your position based upon uh, statutory construction or is it based upon some difference otherwise in terms of the procedural aspects that may differ between the two cases? I think that there are some procedural aspects that are different in that this court uh, I'm sorry, the lower court made clear that in the one document styled as, an, as a motion for appropriate relief based on newly discovered evidence and an amended RJA, this lower court made clear it was not ruling on any RJA claims. It was only ruling on the motion for appropriate relief based upon newly discovered evidence. I think it is also statutory construction because the RJA itself is limited in that language that I just read to the court to claims which are seeking relief from the death sentence, uh, and it is within the RJA context. Uh, expanding it beyond the RJA context is um, something that the legislature could do, but we would submit is not the task of this court. Should this court consider then at all in light of the state's position any aspect of this Batson justifications guidebook, uh, or is the state having this court to uh, conveniently find that because the statutes exist as they do, that this guidebook, unique as it is, uh, doesn't apply? Uh, thank you, Your Honor. Uh, not conveniently so, but we would uh, certainly rely upon the mandatory procedural bar of uh, the provisions in the post-conviction statute which prevent a defendant from raising a claim unless he can meet uh, any and overcome any of those procedural bars. So if this court determines that he has met that and overcome the procedural bar, then the court should remand for a further determination by the MAR court on the merits. Uh, but absent that, our argument is that he is procedurally barred. He's had opportunities uh, in abundance to raise this claim and has failed to do so. We have made the argument that there are two ways. I'm sorry, Justice. Well, I think I'm, I may be asking the same question that Justice Morgan did, but I just want to make sure I understand. So you're saying that if we find that the, this is procedurally barred, then we wouldn't be reaching the merits of the Batson claim? That's correct. Okay. That's correct. I'm sorry if I didn't make that no, clear. Not 
Um, so there are two ways to overcome a procedural bar. The first is to show uh, good cause and actual prejudice, which is defined in the statute, and the second is to show a fundamental miscarriage of justice. Um, the defendant did not show good cause and actual prejudice here. The defendant relied upon two tenets in order to make that argument. The first is he claims that there has been a retrospective application of new law that entitles him uh, to uh, a review of this case. Uh, the second is he claimed newly discovered evidence uh, that he claims provides him an opportunity to overcome the procedural bar. First, there's not been a retroactive retroactively applicable new standard for Batson uh, evaluations. Uh, the defendant claims that uh, in State versus Warring in 2010, this court shifted the standard from what he calls a sole factor test uh, to one that analyzes wh whether race was a significant or motivating factor for the strike. This is not new. This is the same standard that has been true through all of Batson's uh, evaluation uh, all from Batson forward. Um, what this court did in Warring was to clarify uh, a, a misstatement that had been made by the trial court regarding this, um, a, a specific statement about a sole factor. Um, the court there actually went on to say that the trial court had evaluated correctly under the Batson standard, notwithstanding the lapse lingue of the trial court. To succeed on a Batson challenge, the proponent of the challenge must show purposeful discrimination in jury selection, and the ultimate inquiry always is whether the state was motivated in substantial part by discriminatory intent. And, and counsel, I'm sorry, before you get to that point, um, the, the trial court made findings uh, relevant to 1419 uh, that, that the defendant has failed to show good cause, actual pre prejudice, or a fundamental miscarriage of justice to overcome a procedural bar. Uh, how do we treat or what's the standard of review for the MAR court's order uh, under, under these findings? In the, um, it's a, a manifest abuse of discretion in terms of the findings of the lower court. Not only has the law not changed, but there is zero uh, indication from the record below that the trial court was um, operating under an incorrect standard of law in its review of these claims. The defendant has also not established good cause uh, and actual prejudice by <clears throat> um, alleging facts which he claims are newly discovered. The state uh, has detailed in its briefing below and before the MAR court as well um, the uh, verification that the assistant district attorney provided in an affidavit before the court as to post-conviction discovery, which was provided to the defendant back in 1999, uh, verifying that the complete prosecutorial and investigatory file had been provided, including work product, uh, in accordance with 15A, 1415F, with the exception of some materials that were withheld for in-camera review. There's also an order from the MAR court at that time uh, reviewing those documents and determining that nothing in those documents would assist in uh, either in the investigation or the presentation of a motion for appropriate relief. Uh, so he has not established that these are newly discovered uh, documents. Does the Batson justification document fit that description arguably that it was not available and it would 
arguably be newly discovered? I don't believe that it does, Your Honor. Um, as the lower court found, um, we, of course, have argued that it was available because it was part of the prosecutor's files um, that were given in 1999. But uh, it does not fit the category as the MAR court uh, noted because the CLE handout in, it, in and of itself does not evidence racial discrimination. Uh, it is the use of that that the defendant contends uh, evidences racial discrimination, but the mere document itself does not. And for the reasons that the MAR courted, court noted below, um, there's nothing that indicates uh, anything or, or, in fact, from the, from the um, transcript itself, any uh, indication uh, that there was any sort of racial discrimination in the selection of this jury. Is it the state's position that the uh, document does not, is not shown by the record uh, to have been utilized, and that's why there's no showing of any uh, usage of it for race purposes because it does not appear in the record and it was just merely in the file or is there some other uh, basis for the state's uh, statement that uh, the document does not illustrate such? If I'm understanding your question, I, I think the answer is that on its face there's nothing that is discriminatory or evidences any sort of racial discrimination on the face of the document. Um, the defendant alleges that there are references, that there are handwritten notes, um, along with the handwritten note of no rap music, no New York people was also no school teachers. And relevantly in the transcript, there's no discussion at all. There's no inquiry at all about rap music. Um, so that didn't come up during jury selection at all. In fact, the other... Um, the other materials in the prosecutor's um, notes that were discovered clearly step um, through an, a, um, an intended line of inquiry that the prosecution was going to ask jurors about their involvement with the justice system and their knowledge of any of the parties. Nothing about any of those obviously intended lines of inquiry were racially discriminatory on their face. Uh, so there's, uh, in addition to uh, not being able to establish that he didn't have this material at the time when he had the opportunity to raise it in a prior motion for appropriate relief, there's also nothing on its face itself uh, that lends itself to overcoming a procedural bar. And just to clarify something that Justice Earls had raised with you, uh, in terms of talking about if this court would reach the merits of the Batson claim, should the defendant be successful, uh, would the appropriate mechanism for evaluation of the Batson claim be for this court to send it back to the MAR court, MAR of course meaning motion for appropriate relief, send it back to the MAR court for purposes of the MAR court to explore the Batson claim since it was not reached due to being deemed to be procedurally barred? That's correct, Your Honor. The second... Uh manner in which the defendant claims uh, that he has provided evidence, newly discovered evidence, to overcome the procedural bar is through a number of studies, statistical studies, that he presented to the MAR court. The MAR court um, rejected the concept that this was newly discovered and noted that it was not newly discovered, it was newly created. 
By the defendant's own admission, this uh, study collected and aggregated jury selection data over many years uh, and used this data to draw conclusions about the role of race in uh, prosecutorial strikes throughout the state. the MAR court rejected this as being newly discovered and noted <coughs> the danger associated with finding something like this newly discovered is that any time a new study comes out, a defendant could similarly claim it was newly discovered evidence to overcome a procedural bar. The defendant, uh, sorry, the superior court, the MAR court below also found um, that it was not in a position to overrule the lower court, the trial court's findings uh, in the um, bats and challenges at trial and noted uh, that the law of the case prevented him from doing so. This is especially relevant in the context of a Batson challenge because the trial court is in the best position to be able to observe firsthand the reactions, the candor, the hesitation, um, the honesty of both the lawyers and of the juror themselves. Um, An evaluation of that credibility is critical to the determination uh, of whether or not uh, racial discrimination was occurring, and courts, therefore, should ordinarily give those findings great deference. But but just to be clear, in the initial trial, when the trial court was ruling on the bad subjections, the, the, the prosecutor's file with the Top Gun instruction sheet was not before the trial court. That's right. That's right, Your Honor. And certainly the defendant has a valid argument that he could not have raised with that Batson um, uh, CLE handout anything before this court uh, because it was not part of the record. But he did have the opportunity to raise it at prior MARs. Um, and it is relevant because um, although he, does, he claims that he did not have uh, this sheet, uh, most of his argument is a comparative jury analysis argument, which occurs on the transcript, which would have been available to him uh, right after his trial and before he came to this court on direct appeal. So he could have raised his claims um, of, of uh, violation of Batson uh, as the trial court, in review of what the trial court had done below uh, before this court, but he did not. The MAR court here also declined an invitation that the defendant gave to uh, do a comparative jury analysis across unrelated cases. In this case, um, the defendant had asked uh, the MAR court to consider certain questions and responses in unrelated cases that uh, some of the the two prosecutors here had tried, uh, and the MAR court declined to do so. This court has recently underscored that certain historic evidence and strike patterns in a defendant's case are relevant, uh, and they are appropriate considerations um, in the Batson analysis. But neither this court nor the United States Supreme Court have endorsed or suggested that comparative jury analysis should be done across unrelated cases. So the most recent example is in Flowers versus Mississippi. There, the United States Supreme Court was reviewing uh, multiple cases tried against the same defendant multiple times, six trials in total, where the prosecutor struck 41 of 42 
black prospective jurors from the jury venari. Um, in one of those cases prior to the one that came to the U.S. Supreme Court, a Batson challenge has been sustained against the prosecution. That is a far cry and very different from what the defendant would have and ask the MAR court to do, which is to analyze particular answers that came from questions and answers that came from the uh, jurors, the prospective jurors in unrelated cases, and attempt to mirror them to his own case in order to establish what he would claim would be pretextual reasons. And so, counsel, let, let me ask you about that. The, the trial court essentially found uh, on uh, a number of these cases, uh, e either one, that the, the prosecutors were different, um, and to the extent that, oh, I'm sorry, the prosecutors were different, that Batson claims were not uh, raised in, in some of the other cases, that timeliness uh, of the case is 15 years uh, down the road. And, and it seems that the, the trial court, uh, MAR court, uses this um, across unrelated uh, cases through the, the nexus test that, that it uh, discusses. Is, is that a similar test or is it different? I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not sure that I, I know what the nexus test right, is so, that you're referring to. Sorry. So the, no, no, no. The trial court uh, says there's no causal connection between the prosecutor's bad act and the use of the peremptory challenge, and there's no demonstrable nexus between the prosecutor and the evidence to be used. Is that similar to what you're discussing? It is. Um, the defendant is making the argument that prosecutors, um, some of the same prosecutors who tried other cases used similar reasoning in their strikes, and he's attempting to build uh, an argument that that shows pretext for discrimination. The problem with this argument is that in a comparative jury analysis, it is not until the third step of Batson that the trial court is actually evaluating the statements of the prosecutor, the justifications or the reasons given by the prosecutor in determining whether or not pretext was the reason instead of the actual reason. Uh, and so taking in isolation, carving out certain phrases, certain answers by certain jurors and attempting to mirror them in his own case to show pretext completely abandons the opportunity of the trial court to make that evaluation in the third step of Batson. So it is uh, not a fair comparison. Um, and, you know, the United States Supreme Court has even cautioned against um, comparative analysis on a cold record, for instance. So not even talking about unrelated cases, but just the cold record, the cold appellate record. The United States Supreme Court in Snyder versus Louisiana has said uh, that comparative juror analysis um, in a retrospective manner um, might not be accurate on the cold record. It may be misleading when alleged similarities were not raised at trial. Um, and therefore, the court cautioned that an exploration of these alleged similarities, if they had been raised at trial in that comparative jury analysis process, um, would find that they were not actually comparable. That's certainly true when we're talking about jurors across cases in another case. Um, so while it is true that this court and Flowers versus Mississippi have encouraged courts to consider relevant history of the state's peremptory strikes in past cases, and most relevantly any discriminatory strikes, 
It is far different than what the defendant is asking, which is a comparative jury analysis across multiple cases without the full information that the attorney, sorry, that the trial court in another case would have made in those cases, for instance, that he cites to either Batson challenges were raised and rejected or they weren't raised at all, and that in and of itself may be relevant uh, to an analysis. But none of that comes out other than the carved out portions of the prosecutor's questions and uh, the defendant's, uh, sorry, the juror's answers in the defendant's um, analysis here. My colleagues on the court have recognized earlier uh, the aspect of the totality of the circumstances coming into play in terms of evaluating bats and challenges. Are you urging the court in considering the totality of the circumstances to somehow discount comparative juror analysis? No, Your Honor, we're not. Um, comparative jury analysis can be very important. Um, in this case, for instance, the trial court looked at um, uh, any, whether there was any disparate questioning by the prosecutor and found that there had not been. Um, it's very important for the court to engage in comparative jury analysis when the defense brings it up and makes, uh, it's usually defense making these motions, the proponent of a Batson challenge makes these uh, comparative jury um, allegations, uh, the trial court should absolutely do that. It is of limited value, however, to attempt a comparative jury analysis across an unrelated case in an attempt to establish what the defense, defense is attempting to establish pretext. You know, it's interesting because the defendant has woven in the CLE uh, document as evidence that prosecutors are using this as pretext, and he points back to the Lyons case. Lyons case was tried two years before the defendant's case, and the handout to which he refers was issued a few months before his trial was his trial was conducted. Um, so some of those some of those connections don't actually track. Um, it is a totality of the circumstances, and we're not here suggesting that material should be limited in what the court is considering. But no court, including this one, has condoned a cross-case comparative jury analysis, which is what the defendant seems to be asking this court to do. In the totality of the circumstances analysis in this case, how important is the Michigan State University data. It hasn't been raised by either side yet, but I did want to touch on it before the time was out. It could be um, relevant if presented at the appropriate time. Here, he's claiming, the defendant is claiming that it's newly discovered evidence. The lower court has found it's not newly discovered evidence, so it doesn't overcome the procedural bar. Um, it certainly is uh, relevant, and this court has found that it's relevant in the Hobbs case, for instance, in 2020. Um, that was remanded for uh, further consideration of historic evidence and other evidence submitted. Um, so certainly it can be relevant. Statistics have always been relevant. Um, as far back as Miller L. Uh, have been relevant in the assessment of uh, jury selection uh, and Batson claims at the trial level. What we're talking about here today is whether or not the defendant should be afforded the opportunity to raise now what is procedurally barred and has been for quite some time based upon what he presented to the MAR court. We ask that you affirm the lower court and should this court determine that he has overcome the procedural bar, it should remand to the lower court for further findings. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal. 
Thank you. Um, Council, sorry, quick question. What's the evidence in the record that the state didn't make the Batson handout available to the defendant in 1999? It's the affidavits of post-conviction counsel who say they never saw it in the post-conviction discovery that they were provided. Actually, don't they say they don't recall it? That's right. But they do, they do uh, recall specifically being provided with, with the discovery in a certain way. They do not recall seeing a notebook, which is where this document was found when the discovery was provided years later. Uh, I would say it's a, it's a factual question that needs an evidentiary hearing to determine. Thank you. Counsel, uh, I, I'm sorry. On page 45 of your brief, you indicate, and, and this particular portion uh, relates to uh, some of the studies, uh, the MSU study, I think. Uh, the MAR court's ruling thus contravenes the decisions of both this court and the U.S. Supreme <coughs> Court, as well as the position of the Attorney General. Uh, how does it contravene the position of the Attorney General? Uh, there are findings that the task force, the governor's task force on racial equity, um, has made some factual you know, findings about the problem of race discrimination in jury selection. Uh, I, it, those are certainly not central to our argument, and our argument doesn't, doesn't rise or fall on those. It was, it was extra persuasive information. Well, it, the, the, the report is actually cited several times in your brief, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Okay, and, and so what do you have that says the Attorney General, um, the Attorney General's position is uh, any particular side on, on this uh, issue? It's simply the fact that he is co-chair of the task force. And, and who is the other co-chair of the task force? Uh, I believe it's Justice Earls. Thank you. Um, I want to make uh, clear what our argument is on procedural bar. Um, I, I do not agree with Ms. Marquis Elder regarding the, uh, the standard of review. Um, the question of procedural bar is a legal question. The MAR court said that, and those uh, rulings are reviewed de novo by this court. Um, we, it is not procedurally barred because of Burke. It is not procedurally barred because it was not available at the time. And even if, you're, if this court finds that the Thank claim you, was available. Counsel, I believe your time's expired. Thank you.